Welcome to Mulling It Over with Brandon Mole. Hi, I'm Brandon Mole. I'm a number one New York Times bestselling author of a bunch of fantasy series like the Fable Haven series and many more. And I'm Jason Conforto. I'm a filmmaker, a podcaster, and game designer. In this podcast, we're excited to share our love for story and our passion to create. We hope to share a bunch of experiences and lessons learned over a lifetime in creative fields. Today, we're talking about divine comedy. So tell me, tell me a little bit about what divine comedy is. Divine comedy is a sketch comedy troupe at BYU. Mm-hmm. So making comedy skits, kind of like Saturday Night Live format. And for me, it was like boot camp as a writer because I was not just performing comedy, but writing comedy skits and over time became one of the head writers for that group and did it for years. It was very successful. And it was in a lot of ways, the backbone of how I learned to write dialogue. Put us in proper perspective. Where are we in time and place and all that? So in time, I'm a Mormon guy. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And when I was 19, I went on a mission Uh and and I went on a mission. I lived in Chile for two years. And one of the things I did to stay sane while I was down in Chile was I would make up skits that I would share with the other missionaries when we would have a meeting or a a time when when all the missionaries got together. And it was all, I always had to walk a line because if the skits got too sacrilegious, that would be it. You know, we would not be able to do them anymore. And if, if they weren't funny, no one would want to do them anymore either. So I had this interesting weird niche where I figured out how to do pretty funny skits in that setting. And it built my confidence as a script writer and as a skit performer. And so when I got back to school, back to BYU after my mission, and I was like, you know, so this is in Utah. It's like 1998. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm going to keep doing comedy skits. And there was a comedy, a sketch comedy troupe called Divine Comedy that already existed at BYU. And they were having auditions. And I was like... I got to get into this. I got to, I got to be their guy. And there was another troupe on campus that did improv. Right, right. And these guys that did improv, I was like, that, that's not my skill set. Mm-hmm. But if I could get into skits where I could write skits and perform skits, I was like, I think I could maybe hit that out of the park. And so tell, tell me a little bit, was was your, was your hope more on the performing side, the writing side, or was it like a love for both kind of equally? I, I really had a love for both. I thought both would be fun. Right. But, but if anything interested me more, maybe slightly more the writing. Yeah. The idea of coming up with comedy skits, you know, at a pretty public venue, these guys were already doing pretty good at their shows. They'd have a few hundred people per show. And that seemed really exciting to put my material in front of an audience. So before I met you, I went to a few of your shows and I didn't know who you were. I didn't, you know, I, there was, I couldn't tell you apart from anybody else on, on stage. In fact, I don't remember specifically seeing you. I think you played a Gandalf character at one point and I, and I, and I do remember that sketch. So like, I, Oh, you were the Gandalf yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so I remember, so I met you probably three years after, after I saw you on, on stage at, at BYU. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's probably the first time I, I saw you was during that, but didn't realize, you know, we'd have a, <laughs> you know, a, a point in the future where we'd be doing a podcast together or, or years of friendship or anything, but you were at BYU, you were writing these things. You mentioned that this was kind of like a dialogue boot camp. So this is before you've written Beyonders. This is before you've done any of your writing. So tell me what this did for you as a writer? I knew I wanted to write books. Mm-hmm. I, I knew I had this brain that couldn't stop making up stories and, and that I really love to live in fictional scenarios in my head. And I'd been trying since high school to write some good fiction and mostly trying with short stories because I knew, I knew I wasn't great yet. I, right, knew, right. I, I knew my writing skills were such that my imagination far exceeded my ability to express mm-hmm. what my imagination was seeing. 
So I'd written like a bad novella. I'd, I'd written a bunch of so-so short stories. And so I knew that that was part of what I wanted to do. But it was really on my mission that I had my first chance of sharing my writing with some sort of audience. Right. You know, In this case, a bunch of other missionaries. But funny enough that they really liked it. And so I was like, huh, maybe this is a vein I want to explore. And in exploring that vein, as, as I practiced writing comedy, and as I ran, you know, it was a small enough group, it was organized as a student club, that I ended up becoming the president, and I, and I took a huge interest in helping it succeed. And so I, I ran aspects from the marketing to dealing with logistics of booking rooms and paying for sound guys and printing and selling tickets. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was like the ultimate workshop in trying to learn how to be an entertainer as a living. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah, I did a little bit of everything, you know, a little bit of advertising, a little bit of logistics, a little bit of budgeting. And we were... I, I think a lot of times when you think about that, it's like, oh, no, you, you show up, you go on stage, and you go home, right? And somebody else handles that. But when you're on such a small level, you, there there is no team, right? Like, like, what you see on stage is everybody doing the work behind the scenes as well. Yeah, the, the 8 to 10 people on stage were the 8 to 10 people doing the marketing, getting the props, doing the costumes, doing everything except being the sound and light guy, which mm -hmm. were like two friends, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. And so like when, because I was very invested in this thing succeeding and, and growing, and I ended up learning so many aspects of the entertainment industry. And maybe key for me going forward was I wrote a lot of the key skits and a high volume of the skits over the course of four or five years, which just taught me to write on deadline and also taught me to write stuff that was meant for public consumption mm -hmm. and to get used to putting it out there and seeing if it works or not. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't, but what a great way to thicken your skin. Tell me about that immediate reaction. What, what was that like for you when you were either in a sketch or watching behind scenes as someone's performing your sketch and, and what that feedback felt like as a writer? Ever since I was a kid, my mom was the kind of mom that threw me on stage because mm -hmm. I, I could memorize lines and I could read them with experience you know, say them with expression, right. you know, so even as a little kid, like I was stuck performing and that taught me to kind of like it. Right. And I did plays in high school, but I'd never had totally a hundred percent found my niche until it was comedy skits. Mm -hmm. There was something about where the goal was to make people laugh. Right. When you get that laugh, it is a rush. I mean, it really is a thrill. And so whether you're hearing your material, watching your material performed and watching the audience or whether you're doing the material yourself, which is the ultimate right, right, excitement right. and seeing the audience respond, that was really cool. And you sort of start to realize that the audience is your instrument. Yeah. The audience is almost what you're playing and, and you're gauging how well you're doing by how that audience is responding. So sometimes when you hear like an actor say, hey, like we feed off your energy, like, mm -hmm. you know, applaud if you enjoy it. Like that was very true in sketch comedy. If the audience started laughing, we, we would all it, like almost as an automatic response, bring our performance levels up and start to exaggerate and start to push the humor, right? You'd do like four shows a night. How would you use that reaction to manipulate your shows throughout the night? We would take about a month to put together a show. And what we're putting together was about a two-hour show of all comedy skits. And when we first started doing it to bring in an audience, we would actually have part of the show be we'd team up with an acapella group, mm -hmm. like, like a pretty talented one. And so they'd get a set of comedy, and then a set of acapella, you know, like beatboxy acapella songs. Give me some of that beatboxy for me. Can't do it. I don't know. I'll sound like a bad robot, a malfunctioning robot. 
<laughs> but some of the groups we'd perform with were ones that, you know, they had their CDs out and they were pretty known like in, in their little local, in, in our local community. And so they would partly help bring people in the door and they would also provide some content to fill the two hours. But but what we were doing was trying to put on a two hour show. And eventually we were able to drop using acapella groups because mm-hmm. we had enough um skill and drawing power to do a two-hour show right which is what it became after about the first year year and a half but like we would prepare comedy skits and then we would do about four shows we do like two friday shows two saturday shows all the same set of skits Mm -hmm. and then based on how the reactions went we would adjust in between right sometimes we'd fully drop a skit if it's like this one just is a stinker it's just not working sometimes we'd change the show order you always want to end with a really strong one you always want to start with a pretty strong one ideally i think your second best skits the first and your very best skits right. the last right you're, you're trying to mix um how much physical comedy how much is cerebral comedy long skits versus short skits you're trying to stagger things so that it doesn't fall so that into, the pacing's right yeah so it doesn't fall into a, a any sort of dull pattern as much as you can right and so much of that is just paying attention to audience reaction mm-hmm. right paying attention to what is working and what is not and maybe even trying to figure out okay if we shorten this one it works better or like we were on the fly sometimes even rewriting a little bit or improvising a little bit to to make things work better and th- and that was so powerful to learn to adapt to what's working for the audience, right? Like like really important, really interesting. Yeah, I think you mentioned before about this, like it being dialogue boot camp, but I heard something in there that I didn't realize what you're doing is you have a sketch. And sometimes when I think of sketch comedy, I put it in a category of it, just a sketch all by itself. But your sketches were more than that. It was about a full show. Right. And where it fit in the whole show. It's like listening to a song versus listening to an album and what the album is trying to do versus an individual song with within the album. Did you do you see any translation between that and writing like writing a chapter versus a whole book and the pacing in there? Did did you learn skills in in that time period that helped you? transition to novels beyond just writing dialogue yeah it's kind of funny like like writing a whole show of skits Mm -hmm. is a little bit more like writing a series or a book with a lot of chapters it's a good point it it would be probably most like writing a compendium of short stories Mm -hmm. if you wrote Mm -hmm. a a compendium of sorts because each skit is so different right thematically there wasn't a through line through the show usually it was more like staggering good skits that, so that it was a good experience in the end and it, and as i think about it it was very different from how saturday night live does it yeah explain because saturday night live they try to put their best skits early period mm-hmm. i don't know if, if you've watched a lot of the show but if you watch a lot of the show some of their worst skits are usually toward the end and they don't have a best skit at the end that, yeah. that's like wow that was and, the best and, one and it's probably because of drop off in viewership right yeah like, I, I think i think they're they, they kind of know that people are going to be dropping off and so like let's not put our best thing at the end or or like half the people will see it right mm-hmm. and so they, they really on Saturday Night Live I think front load the show but for us we thought of it as being you know a we had a captive audience right. no, right. One's, no one's dropping no off. one's switching the channel they paid their three bucks yeah they're, you know, <laughs> they're invested at that point they're a college kid <laughs> six bucks if they got a if they got a date right, right? and so like they, they've paid their three bucks they're sitting in their seat and let's give them a good show and let's end it strong so they walk out feeling like oh that was awesome so yeah, we'd always try to have a really strong closer, a really strong opening. And we'd only do, you know, because it takes about a month to put this show together, we'd maybe do two or three original shows in a semester. And then at the end, we'd do a best of show, which was always our best show. Because mm-hmm. you could take, having had the experience of what skits worked, you could then create 
you know, like the best skits that we came up with this semester seasoned with some of the best skits that we've ever done. And then you could make a re- like, you know, a really, truly strong show. Two things I want to hear about. One is the process of writing, because I, I know when you first came in there, their writing process was more improv based. So, so explain to me a little bit about that. And then let's talk about how the evolution of that show took place from where you found it in that and to what the show became. A comedy troupe like that was the cast. Mm -hmm. The people that you had to work with was what the show was going to be. And when I first joined up, they had some really talented guys. And the way that these guys would generate their material is they would improvise until they found bits that worked. Mm -hmm. And then they'd solidify that into a skit, right? So they would discover their skits through improvisation. And some of the guys that were in that troupe were amazing. There was this guy named Jason Smith, who is still like one of my comedy idols. And he went out into the wide world and became a special effects wizard. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, has, I mean, he's been at the podium accepting Academy Awards for special effects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He worked for Industrial Light and Magic and did like amazing stuff, right? This was one of the most polymath talented guys I ever saw who could just make anything funny. And so you had these some really talented performers and really good improvisers. And so the, so the way they did it really worked for them, mm-hmm. right? Like, like they had found this way. But for me, I wanted to write skits. I wasn't quite as confident as making up things on the spot and relying on my improv skills as I was about mulling it over. Nice. <laughs> did, did you just improv that moment? <laughs> I, I may have. I may have. Or I might have had that, you know, scripted, yes. ready to go. But like... For me, I liked to sit and think and come up with an idea that seemed funny and write it out and like Mm -hmm. discover it by writing it out. And part of that was I'd written a lot of fiction, not good fiction, but I was used to the medium of writing, writing out my ideas. And so I, I started writing out skits. And as I wrote out skits, I brought in some that were pretty fire that were pretty Mm -hmm, strong mm -hmm. you know and as i brought in some strong skits that i'd written out ahead of time and another guy in the troupe called ryan hamilton started bringing which there's a comedian named ryan hamilton a stand-up comedian and this is a different ryan hamilton though i knew but but still a comedian and also a comedian i knew both of them in college i I believe the ryan hamilton you're talking about i've actually played dungeons and dragons with him before oh small world Yeah, yeah 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 so so the ryan hamilton in the in the comedy troupe he would also start bringing in written skits and over the course of maybe a year and, and some new people coming in and some of the old guard going out, it became like all about what scripts are you bringing in? Mm-hmm. Whereas they didn't even used to, no one wrote scripts, right? And that culture stayed, I believe, till now. I mean, that con- comedy troupe still persists at BYU. And a, and a big part of how you justify your membership in the comedy troupe was, are you generating some skits right. that help everybody perform? One of the beautiful things about writing comedy in this way was it was a way to learn to write to different characters, mm. right? And and the different characters you had was the performance range of the individual members of the troupe. So there was a guy named Sean who was really good at selling a dumb guy. Right, right, right. He could just kill it. And so you wanted to give him stuff he could kill. And so you, you, you'd write... You would always have a dumb guy in, in you, the sketch. You'd write yeah. the dumb guy, right? And if I, if I write a sketch about how awkward slow dances can be... I make sure one of the slow dance couples in in the sketch is Sean as a dumb guy dancing with someone, right? Yeah. And, and if you had love interests in the sketch, you'd always cast your brother and sister. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. So weirdly, my brother and sister were in the troupe with me, and sometimes we did have to play. Yeah, very, very bizarre. A little too much, but, you know, that's a, a very confusing story. era yeah. for all of us. <laughs> or you had Marin, who had this high little voice and this little girl feel to her. Mm-hmm. You know, like the kind of lady who someday will be an old grandma with a little girl voice, right? Right, right. 
And she had this very dark humor Mm -hmm. that was part of her whole persona. And so writing for her was so fun, right? You just learned what people could do and sometimes ask people to stretch to do things. And you could write for yourself. You knew your own range. You're like, I I can sell this guy. Like a lot of times... I would be kind of an everyman type character or, you know, cause I, I, like I would create things that I knew I could sell the jokes pertaining to mm-hmm. this character, right? I can sell them. And that is exciting to both do in, con- in conception, but then to take it and put it in front of an audience and get instant feedback was such an amazing way to have a gauge to how well you were doing. You know, you brought up that, that writing to people's skills and talents and whatnot. It reminded me of actually you and I worked on a documentary for part of the documentary. We were able to talk to your agent about your writing skills and he expressed on, on a project that you're working on that you weren't writing to your own skills and your own talents. And, and I can see now how important it is when you're writing for a troupe to be able to write for their skills and their talents. But as an author now who's writing novels, you need to be writing to your own skills, what you do best and how you do that. Yeah, like understanding what you can pull off, mm-hmm. understanding the kind of characters that you can make work is so key, right? I mean, one of the big things you do as an author, and maybe the maybe the single hardest thing you do, is to try to seem like you're a hundred different people. Mm-hmm. When you're just one. Right, right. Right? But you're trying to make it feel like this character is distinct and this character is a, you know, a 45-year-old guy and this character is a 13-year-old girl and trying to make them each an individual as best you can. Mm-hmm. Right? And when you really stop and think about it, that it's this one guy doing a puppet show with all these different right, characters right. and trying to make them feel authentic, it's sort of a wonder anyone creates a cast of characters in a novel that feel believable. If you were to describe your writing skill and what you're good at versus what you're bad at, just just give me a peek behind this curtain of like, this is what I'm really good at. And if you want a writer to do X, Y, or Z, it's it's not me. Like that's that's not where, where do you where do you see yourself at in, in writing? My biggest strength is raw imagination horsepower. Mm-hmm. I if you want to see new scenarios, things you haven't seen before, remixes that are interesting and different, I can do that until the end of time. Mm-hmm. Like it, like if I were a Hollywood ideal idea guy, I could support a studio with my imagination. Like I, I just have that kind of horsepower for making up original ideas, right? right. What am I not? Like I didn't get into writing because I am a master of language. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm trying to learn that as best I can. And sometimes I get excited. I'll find some great turns of phrase or use language well. But like there's sometimes there's a kind of writer where like this guy or this girl has such amazing language skills. Yeah. And the story's not even that good if you like broke it down as an outline. Right. But, but every the, word but is it's, dripping with power. And, yeah, yeah. It's so well told that it mm-hmm. just totally works. That's, that's not my strength. Yeah. I work really hard to do as well as I can there. But if you went pound for pound with some of my novels, you'll find more good original ideas in my books than you'll find in a lot of people's whole series or a lot of people's whole career. Like, I'm really good at lots of original ideas, right? It, it, it is a strength of mine. I'm good at helping fantasy things feel kind of real. Like, I have a lot of fun at having a demon on his deathbed and trying mm-hmm. to get inside mm-hmm. that guy's head and making it feel like what it might really feel like and what it might really be like. Like, things like that are are good for me things like creative imaginative wish fulfillment kind of scenarios i'm really good at generating that kind of stuff like oh i would love to see that place or i would i would love to be there or oh what an exciting adventure whereas sometimes the character nuances or like the depth of character not always my strength right Mm -hmm. something I'm, i'm always trying to work on i'm trying to do it as best i can but it's not my strongest forte 
You know? Yeah, no, that's great. Let's get back to Divine Comedy a little bit. I know Divine Comedy led to a hand, I don't know how many, but a handful of opportunities where you were able to do stand-up comedy. Tell me a little bit about what that experience life was like for you, writing and performing. I mean, here's the thing about performing. Performing for an audience as an actor or a comedian and performing for an audience as a writer are almost opposite experiences. Mm -hmm. I'm talking as a writer of novels. In one, I get instant feedback if a joke is funny. In another, it's, it, it is the equivalent of telling a joke and waiting a year and a half <laughs> to find out for someone worked. to laugh, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I really miss that instant feedback. It was so fun, and it was so scary. Here was a scenario that happened at our comedy troupe. Because we were a fairly successful comedy troupe on campus, we had a professional visiting stand-up that the university had hired, and they needed somebody to be an opener for him, to do a 10-minute comedy set as an opener. And so they asked our troupe if we had someone who wanted to be an opener for him, which you don't usually get just a blind invitation to go right. do a set of stand-up for thousands of university kids. And, and we got this invitation, and nobody wanted it. <laughs> but it like, pass. Except for me. <laughs> because I was like, that sounds like a fun challenge. Yeah. And I'd been doing comedy skits and, and I had a lot of confidence that I can write stuff that'll make people laugh because my stuff had been working mm -hmm. now, you know, for a couple of years, I've been doing it successfully, but that's very different from doing stand-up where it's just you alone on mm -hmm. stage selling some stream of consciousness jokes as you interplay with an audience. But I was like, yeah, I want this challenge. Now I shouldn't have wanted that challenge. <laughs> I shouldn't have said yes. I mean, that was, that it was one of the mistakes in my life maybe was saying yes to that because when you do stand-up, you workshop your material often for months mm -hmm. in comedy clubs on open mic nights or wherever you can get in front of us. Where you're talking in front of like 10 to 20 people too. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you're with a small group, a smallish group of people with fairly low expectations because mm -hmm. they're there on open mic night or whatever. Probably a lot of the group are there to also do their own material, you know, for their three minutes or whatever. And you can workshop your stuff and, and get a sense for what's working and what's not before you take it in front of a larger venue. Right. Yeah. Um, when you see Jerry Seinfeld on a Netflix special, he's doing material that he started doing in front of small audiences mm -hmm. and, and worked out the nuances of, of how to sell those jokes and to weed out the ones he thought were funny, but that don't really work for, for a crowd. I had done none of that work. Yeah. You're weeding out in front of 2000 people. I, I was weeding out in my imagination. Right. <laughs> as, as I prepared 10 minutes of, of standup right. comedy that I was trying, that I had never performed before right. and thought I had memorized because I'd run it through <laughs> in my head. Sure. Sure. And suddenly I am at this student center and I'm seeing thousands of kids. And when I say kids, I mean peers, right? right? Thousands of college students here to listen to this stand up for whom I'm opening. And it was the most scared I'd ever been in my life. I love it. Like, like I, I can't think of a moment where I had greater panic uh -huh. of like, why did I choose this? Like, this is exactly how you go parachuting and die. Cause, <laughs> cause you, 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 because your parachute is a backpack, right? That you and you put a sheet inside of it with some string, because that's what you like thought a parachute was. And you're getting ready to jump out of the plane, and you're like, "Wait, wait a second, this, wait a second, this isn't a real parachute. I, I didn't know what I, I'm not a comedian." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and so it was terrifying, yeah. and there was no way out. Like it, yeah. was, it was, and I had the material that was sure, maybe sure. right. And I remember one of the bits that I'd built into it was at the start, I got up and told everybody, hey, I'm going to do some strip comedy. 
comedy for you. Nice. And and it was like, if you guys don't laugh, I lose a piece of clothes. <laughs> so I was like, trust me, you want to laugh. You know, and, and that that alone, like I was like, that is some that's funny. Right. I was like, I am pretty sure that's funny no matter who you are, right? Yeah, yeah. And so by starting with that, that really helped. Because A, I started off with something that was kind of funny and it gave an interesting context. And then B, when something did bomb, which a couple times it did, I take off a shoe and throw it over my shoulder <laughs> and everybody's back. They're right, with right, me. Right. And then almost like maybe he had some bombs in there on purpose. Yeah, man, he's doing this on purpose so <laughs> yeah. he can get naked. What a maestro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he will very soon be in a swimsuit, right? Yeah, I should have worn a lot of rings that yes. night. I, I didn't think that far ahead. Just to unbutton every now and then when it bombs. and yeah. What was kind of crazy was it ended up being a decent set. Mm -hmm. Why did it end up being a decent set? Because uh, I'd practiced writing comedy and written yeah. a lot of comedy skits. So I, I did come up with some ideas. There was enough that worked that the professional comic came after me after and said, yeah, you could probably go do this. Yeah. If you wanted to go do this, you could probably go do this. Which was a really cool compliment to get sure. on your first try. Right, 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 right. right. Like, which was just, it wasn't my first try at doing comedy. It was my first try at doing stand-up. But after that... I continued to write some stand-up and I would sometimes do stand-up in front of our shows, in front mm -hmm. of the Divine Comedy shows. That was the only other place I ever did stand-up in my life was in front of the, the Divine Comedy shows. But I, I got okay at it. I could sell a joke well enough right. to, to do it in that kind of venue that, that it worked, you know? According to this comic, you had a possible future in stand-up comedy, right? You could have you gone that. Yeah. I know there wasn't a big temptation there, but there was a temptation to stay in sketch comedy, right? Tell me, tell me about what would have happened had you wanted to. How fulfilled would your life have been had you been like, you know what, novels, I, I, I had this pipe dream of novels, but like, I guess it's sketch comedy. It was the first time I'd felt, I'd found something that felt like a perfect fit mm -hmm. for my skill set. We worked so hard in the early the early years. It wasn't as big as I wanted it to be. I would go to the student center and hand out flyers and say, hey, you should really come. We got a really fun show. Like It's like super cheap, and it's it, you'll be surprised how funny it is. And say that pitch over and over and over and over for like a year mm -hmm. in, in the student center until we built up our audience to a place where we were selling out every show. And then we we built up our audience to a place where we didn't need to perform with an acapella group anymore to fill the room. And that gave us more time which, for which comedy. Which is the goal of everybody in life, right? <laughs> when you, when you, you can make it on your own without the support of an acapella group. Yeah, <laughs> that's just, exactly that's just right. where you want to be in and, and honestly, the show's lost something kind of fun. It was fun. There's a like fun, cheesy, sure. like, like it's cheesy and there's real talent there. Like mm -hmm. it's both those things. And like it, it lost something when we weren't performing with voicemail or whoever was the acapella right. group of the moment. Right. But it did give us more time for comedy. So suddenly we were truly filling a two hour show and we weren't, we were filling a two hour show and selling out a two hour show. And then we had to start increasing the size of our auditorium mm -hmm. until we were using like the biggest auditorium on campus. And we were selling out 900 seat auditorium four times on on a weekend so that's 3600 tickets and we'd sell out pre-sale the monday before against a football game yeah you know what i mean like 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 where the audience was fairly rabid and fairly and like the tickets never got to like we kept the tickets like four bucks five bucks in fact it became a problem that the student club was making so much money the reason i'm describing this is i and the other guys and girls in the troupe with me had put in a lot of effort to make this quality and to make it succeed. And as it succeeded, that was euphoric. Mm -hmm. It was really exciting to go from like, I have to push and push and push and like advertise and advertise and advertise to we just say, hey, we're doing a show and boom, it sells out, right? Like that feeling to 
think back to how hard it was to push it, and now it's just pulling you along, and all you have to do is keep writing good material. You don't have to worry about begging people to come. It was a microcosm of my book career. Yeah. Right? Because at the start of a book career, you are begging anyone mm -hmm. to crack that book open. Right? And then you reach a point where, like, you're inviting you to foreign countries to come speak, yeah. you know? <laughs> and, and you're like, you don't understand. I planned this birthday party for myself a long time ago. And now, finally, I don't have to plan my own birthday party anymore. But, but like, for so many years, I was pushing so hard to get some momentum going, right? And so having that momentum work in Divine Comedy, it was really hard because it was organized at a student club at BYU. So when I was done and graduated, there wasn't a better place to go. There wasn't a comedy venue in the state that was doing half the business that mm -hmm. we were doing. You know what I mean? And so yeah. like, there, it wasn't like there was, now go do it, but at a professional level, like we had you set had already up. peaked we in were the making, state of Utah. Yeah, we were making more money than anybody in Utah for comedy. You know what I mean? Like we were the peak for, for doing sketch comedy, right? And, and like the only up place to go would have been like TV or SNL or something like that. And I just didn't know how to make that kind of jump. It was, right. it, it felt like trying to fly to the moon or something. I think if I could have figured out how to make that, I might've been able to make a jump like that. Mm -hmm. I really do. Like I, I had built a skill set for that kind of stuff. But if I could have pursued that and continued doing that, I might've, I really loved it. It felt like a really good fit. The fact that I didn't know where to go after Divine Comedy ended is why I started putting all my effort into my novels. And I'm grateful I did because, again, I found something that felt like a perfect fit as Fablehaven came out and Beyonders and Five Kingdoms. And I was doing the thing I'd always wanted to do since I was a little kid, which was make up adventure stories and have people actually like them and read them enough that I could do it as my job. How big of a role does comedy play in your novels and in your book? How, how important it is for you to, to have good comedy in there? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's really important because... When someone's reading a book, your main goal as an author is for them to emotionally react to the material. Why? This is my theory. If someone emotionally reacts to the material you've given them, it is now true to them mm -hmm. because they're not reacting to nothing. Right. Right. And, and that can be any emotional reaction. If they cry, that story has become true because they're not crying about words. They're crying about a story that's gotten true in their mind and in their heart. If they laugh at a character, that story has become true. They're not laughing at nothing. Right. If they're angry or frustrated by a character or by an injustice that happens in the story and it's bothering them, that's an emotional reaction. And that reaction is happening because the story is true for them. And to me, it, comedy is one of the easier places when it works to have characters become real in people's minds because you laugh. And when you're laughing, hey, it's become kind of real to you. You are interacting with the material as if it's true. Also, I mean, Disney has a really famous quote for every laugh a tear. Okay. And the idea is that, you know, you want any fictional adventure or any fictional story to have some contrast, mm -hmm. some ups and downs. You know, it's a roller coaster because you go up and down, right? And so remembering that if there's some scary moments that can be balanced with some funny moments, that creates a more fulfilling and rich experience than a monotone of scary or a monotone of adventure. And we think of some of our favorite books and movies and Often it's some of the funny moments in an adventure movie that are the most remembered and quoted, right? And, and they're even funnier by contrast against the high stakes or the danger, right? And so, yeah. Almost like a release of tension in, in those moments sometimes, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one way to study a novel is as a system of tension and release. Mm -hmm. And, you know, comedy is a great way to release some of those tensions. 
a couple other things that came from sketch comedy that went straight into my books. I mean, one was there's no better way to develop your comic timing than to write for an audience and see what works, mm-hmm. right? Though the stuff I write in a book isn't for an audience, I have written, you know, probably about for a, a live audience. Yeah. yeah, a live audience. I, I've written probably about a hundred skits for a live audience. And that experience gave me some sense, some gauge for what works with comedy and what doesn't. That's not like I have this guaranteed compass, but a better compass than if I hadn't performed a hundred skits mm-hmm. in front of people mm-hmm. for five years that I wrote. Also, there's the idea of distinct character voices and trying to write material for those different characters that work for those different characters, much like how I would try to write material for the different comedy members. Um, I mean, if any author could be a head writer for a, com- a sketch comedy troupe, I'd say absolutely yes. Like you will do very little that will be better practice for writing for different characters. And then just the idea of learning to do quality work over time and trust that that will eventually build a brand that people will be coming to and that you won't always have to be the guy in the megaphone trying to draw in the crowd. If you do that for a while and do good work, eventually the crowd will come on their own. And so those are some really big lessons that I learned from being in Divine Comedy and writing for Divine Comedy that went straight into into writing books. I had an experience with you early on in our career together when you described that megaphone where you and I were... uh, we're doing that for... Uh, for independent movies. <laughs> for independent movies. And and probably, I don't even know if you want to share it on here or, or not, but... Whatever. But do you know what I'm talking about? Say more. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Saints and Soldiers at the Bees game. Do you remember what happened? Oh, that was so great. Yeah. That was a great moment. Yeah, we could totally share that. So it's amateur, not not amateur, it's professional baseball, but minor league minor baseball. Minor league baseball. Right, yeah. the, the Salt Lake Bees. Fun to watch, really cool. Yeah, yeah. Not amateur at all. Yeah. Minor league. Yeah. It was minor league. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amateur is the wrong word. Amateur were, was us at the time. <laughs> yeah, very much so. We were just trying to promote this movie, Saints and, Saints Soldiers. and Soldiers. And we were we were dressed in costume. As well, we had little plastic World War II <laughs> helmets on. Full, full-grown men in our twenties yeah. wearing wearing these these helmets and uh, passing out flyers for the the movie Saints and Soldiers. Yeah, we'd created some sort of partnership with mm-hmm. the, the baseball team, and and on certain game days, we were there dressed as World War II soldiers handing out these pamphlets. And, and you know, you felt a little bit like Big Bird. You know, you, you, you just felt like ridiculous. You know, it wasn't Halloween. Right. And not, most people did not know what to make of us. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it was the perfect time for my ex-girlfriend to come walking into the baseball arena and, and to be like, I hadn't seen this person in years. And, like, to be like, I'm doing great. <laughs> Things are Here's awesome. A flyer. Here's a flyer for a, 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 a small independent movie you've never heard of yeah. that I'm I'm dressed up as a character for. It was very surreal. It like, was it was a it was, you and I were having a conversation. We were, we were talking. We were laughing. We were having a good time. We we're passing out flyers. And then, from my point of view, this is what happened. Yeah. This 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 woman and you made eye contact with each other. You didn't say a thing. She walked up to you. You just stood there looking at each other and you you lift up your flyer, you hand it out in front of her, she takes it and you continue to look at each other and then she walks away. And then you don't continue the conversation with me after, you know, we have a break again. <laughs> and I was like, what was that? Like what happened there? And uh, and basically you said, I, I think she's pretty happy that she didn't end up getting married to me. It was kind of the, uh, kind of the result of that. But yeah, so, so there will be 
phases in life where we are either trumpeting our own work or somebody else's work and we're not, we haven't quite arrived yet, right? And, and uh, yeah, and, and, and yeah. I, I, f- I bet it feels better to be on the other side of that where, where you don't have to do that anymore. What do people want when it's their birthday? If you're the kind of person that likes to have a party, right? And some people don't want a party period. I'm not talking about that. But if you're the kind of person that likes having a birthday party and mm-hmm. having an excuse to see your friends and, and celebrate the occasion, what you want is for somebody else to plan a really fun party yeah. that, that you then attend. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, if you want to have that party, you have to plan it yourself. Yep. And no one wants to be the guy planning their own party. But if you really want a party, that's one way to get it done. Mm-hmm. That holds so true. It worked for Bilbo. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> that's pretty good. But it, but it just is. It's, it's true for a lot of entertainment yeah. endeavors. If you're not willing early on to be the guy planning your own birthday party and doing a lot of work to generate just a little bit of interest, you might not have the chance to do like the kindling phase of the career when mm-hmm. you get those first sparks to catch and the first word of mouth to start spreading. If you can't be your own best marketer, sometimes that could be the difference between having a career and not. Tell me, how did the, how did Divine Comedy end for you? How did, how did this all wrap up? You know, I did it for a lot of years and for a while I was the president and for a long time I was the head writer. I, you know, and when I say head writer, there were always a couple head writers mm-hmm. basically, right? But I would often write five key skits in a show. Often I would write the show opener and the show closer. Not all the time, but often, you know, enough that it was pretty frequent. And sometimes that was even if we brainstormed a really great idea together as a troop, they'd hand it to me to go make it happen and finish it off, right? So so it wasn't like all these ideas were purely mine, right? Like, like a lot of this stuff was very collaborative, but I would be the guy that would hammer out the final skit and then uh, and, and that we would take and, and make a show out of. And, and I loved playing that role. Mm-hmm. I loved doing that. And I loved being at a school that had all these religious quirks and I had an outlet for teasing it. Yeah. Right. And that, that really helped me stay sane. You know, I was a kid from California. I'd grew up in California and Connecticut. A lot of what was the culture at BYU and in Utah was, was so weird to me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and sometimes only my inner monologue could talk to me about how <laughs> weird it was. And it was so fun to be able to get on a, on a soapbox with a megaphone and say, look how weird this is. Let yeah. me, let me highlight it for you. Right. In a way that we can all laugh at it. And, you know, it was all about, kind of like I said when I back when I was a missionary it wasn't about making fun of the religion right but it was about or the pe- sacred yeah because I, I I feel I have a, a lot of sacred feelings about God I wasn't trying to trash God or I wasn't trying to trash being a religious person but I was teasing a lot of the the oddities of of a culture that was that existed at a religious school where there was just funny things about well you don't date a guy before he goes on a mission because he's going to leave on a mission you have to d- date him after he's a returned missionary and and that's not normal at other schools, but at BYU, that's a funny situation. Right. You know, and, and, and you can tease that humor in, from so many angles in so many ways. And so a lot of the comedy we wrote was for that environment. It wouldn't have worked on a national stage because we were teasing the eccentricities of our weird little college. And some of the stuff we wrote would have totally worked on a national mm-hmm. stage because it was more general, right? Doing that for a long time and playing such a key role, it was very hard. 
when I got to the end. And so for after I graduated, I stayed on quietly doing stuff, like kind of performing with them for another year and a half. You were like that creepy kid who graduated from high school but still showed up. I was still showing up, yeah, right? Like, yeah, yeah. And it was just because it was a really hard habit to quit. It helped that my younger brother and sister were still in it. So I had a very kind of and a- And still dating each other. Yeah, still dating each other. <laughs> on stage. On, on stage. On the, in the right skits, <laughs> in the ones they wrote, you know. <laughs> but having them still in it kind of gave me a logical tie to the group. So as they were aging out of it too, then it became even increasingly tenuous. And there reached a point where we had to have a talk as a group where it was like, yeah, I think it's, they were had to be like, I think it's done. You know, like, like there comes a point where you move on and, and you mm-hmm. do other things. And that was, that was a hard day. And they were right. There was a day when it was done. And for a little while, like maybe for a semester, I wrote without performing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It, it, it was just such a hard habit for me to quit because it had gone so well and been so fun and I just didn't want it to end. And then when it, when it was over, I, I honestly have never been back to see a show. And the reason I've never been back to see a show is it was Because you don't put up with garbage. (laughs) (laughs) It's just standards. It's a matter of standards. No, it was like for the same reason you don't don't just go hang out casually with your Mm ex-girlfriend. Like there was too much there for me to go interact with it casually for me, right? Like it was just too much. It was too hard. And all sorts of cool things came out of Divine Comedy. Like they they kept doing good stuff. There was a group called Studio C that did, that they were all Divine Comedy people. They knew all the same lingo and went Mm -hmm. through, like if I talk to any of the Studio C comedians, we can talk Divine Comedy and we have the same code name for Blackout, which is Goosh. And we know Mm -hmm. that a really short skit is called a weird. And we can talk about very common experiences that we had as part of Divine Comedy that were unique. Because Divine Comedy eventually grew, well, it didn't technically grow into Studio C, but members of that cast got recruited into Studio C, right? The, the yeah. TV show. So Yeah, there's a TV show, Studio C, that was on for a long time and is still on with, I think, a new, another cast. Mm-hmm. But they were all basically Divine Comedy graduates. Mm-hmm. you know, from a younger generation than mine that went on to, to do it on television, which I would have loved to yeah, have yeah, done yeah. back then, but it just wasn't viable back then. We were trying, we were trying to find ways to do DVDs or to do it professionally, but we just, we could never figure it out. And everyone was going off on their own directions mm-hmm. to be engineers. And, you know, it was, it was interesting because Divine Comedy was every, everybody but the theater kids. The theater kids had to be on in shows on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And so they couldn't do Divine Comedy. So it was this mishmash of English majors and engineers. And, you know, one of them's teaching business at some fancy school now and you know they're all, most of them are, are high achievers that are doing really interesting things are any of them still in comedy from from my from my guys a couple of them do it casually yeah you know like like i know i know joel does improv mm-hmm. and i know like gavin would do stand up and improv but yeah. like but like nobody's like making a living at it yeah. you know every, yeah. everybody's doing other stuff too all talented enough too i mean those guys are yeah. are all amazing yeah. they're they're really good yeah, yeah like like it, it, with the right setup mm-hmm. we 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 could have done a studio c type thing and probably done great you know yeah. Because there was a lot of talent. Well, I know you still use those guys, right? At your release parties. And, and, and talk to me about that and how the release parties are, are kind of like reunion tours for your group of Divine Comedy. Yeah. So because of my background doing sketch comedy, when I do a big major book launch, in like, you know, and usually that's in Utah because it's just close to home and I can control it and get the people there I need there. We will do a big sketch comedy show as part of the book launch, which is not your typical author thing to do, but it makes lots of sense for me because that's what mm-hmm. I, I did all through college. It's sort of like Avengers Assemble and, and, and we get all these, all these, you know, now middle-aged... Professionals from around the country. <laughs> yeah. These, these middle-aged former collegiate 
comedians come back together and we we put on funny shows, you know, and we don't do a full two hour show. We maybe do four or five skits and but I get to write some new skits and we, we sometimes do some of our old skits that kind of fit an audience that is there for a book. Like we had an author's skit that we did back in the day. And, and you know, if it's something that was book related, it made sense to, to bring it back in that venue. But for me, it's really fun because it's like having a little divine comedy reunion about once a year when a new book comes out. And I think audiences like it. I mean, my, my launch parties have been really well attended and the reactions tend to be really positive. And it just isn't, for me, it's it's like a this is your life kind of night, you know, where I get to see a lot of old friends and we, we have the fun of doing some skits. And in a way that keeps that, that flame still burning like one day a year for me. That, that flame of sketch comedy. I've been at some parties with uh, with you and your friend where just private events where you guys are performing for each other. Do you know what the last sketch I saw you write was? No. I bet you can figure it out. You wrote it for a special person, Erlen. Oh, that was the last one you saw? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I will do sometimes a Christmas after party with which is again an excuse to do a reunion with my friends and my comedy friends and it, it kind of gets wider over the years where it, it includes guys like you that weren't in my comedy troupe mm-hmm. but you're just a friend and so you've been there for years coming to those and some of my author friends sometimes I'll, I'll have them come out but we do this we do a christmas after party and as part of the christmas after party i always make sure we do a talent show because it's just too many funny weird people in a room not to have them perform for each other right and I'm always my favorite part of the night is is doing the talent show. And yeah, one year I I, I did a comedy skit in which I proposed to Erlin, who is my who is my wife. You know, my my first marriage lasted about 15 years, and then uh, you know I spent I spent a few years as a divorce guy, and then as I as I got remarried, yeah, I used I used a comedy skit at one of those parties to propose for my wife, which was a great way to show my wife that I don't understand her at all. <laughs> But I knew that, <laughs> but I still did it anyway, because she doesn't like to have like a spotlight on her right, or right. be in front of a crowd, which is so ironic because she's actually quite good in front right, of a crowd. Right, she's right. very articulate, but but yeah, it wasn't how she would have chosen on paper, but she was a good sport. Yeah, that was an awesome night. Well, thanks for sharing with us your adventures with Divine Comedy and how that relates into your writing. And we'll catch you uh, next time when we mull it over with Brandon Mole. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Jason. Hey there, fellow adventurers. I am Jason Conforto. And I'm Tyler Crump, and we are hosts of a podcast, Adventure AI, where we play Dungeons and Dragons with an AI named Alex the Language Lord. I'm Alex the Language Lord. Join us as we craft epic tales together. Do you want to learn how to use AI in your D&D campaign? Or how AI can force you to do things that you don't want to do? Wait a second. We don't like that. (laughs) Look no further. Adventure AI is the podcast for all your AI-powered D&D adventures. Alex the Language Lord not only comes up with campaigns for us, he also helps us create our characters, create our backstories, and even give us some fun magical items. And really takes all the human aspects out of Dungeons and Dragons. (laughs) So it's not really playing at all. Follow Adventure AI on whatever platform you listen to podcasts.